listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Please hear the word of our God and Job. Then Job answered, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it's true that I have erred, my errors will remain with me. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my humiliation an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net around me. Even when I cry out, violence, I am not answered. I call aloud, but there is no justice. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass, and he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped my glory from me and had taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side, and I am gone. He has uprooted my hope like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have thrown up siege works against me and encamp around my tent. He has put my family far from me, and my acquaintances are wholly estranged from me. My relatives and my close friends have failed me. The guests in my house have forgotten me. My female servants count me as a stranger. I have become an alien in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must myself plead with him. My breath is repulsive to my wife. I am loathsome to my family. Even young children despise me when I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I love have turned against me. My bones cling to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, have pity on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me, never satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written down. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and with lead they were engraved on a rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, then in my flesh I shall see God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And thank you, Kurt, for that reading. Oh, man. It's inten- an intense passage. Um, although I got to say, that, that line about my, bre- my uh, breath being repulsive to my wife is a little too close to home for me. Um, <laughs> oh, man. So for the last couple weeks, we've been in the book of Job. Um, and I've gotten some great feedback from a number of you who are really tracking with this series, which is awesome. I always think uh, it's really cool when we can take one of these familiar old stories like Job and kind of turn it around, re-examine it, and find something new. Last week we talked about Job's friends, uh, Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar. Uh, but today I want to focus on Job himself, the character of Job, the afflicted one, right? I don't know about you, but um, I often imagine Job as a sort of ideal hero, right? Uh, He's this model of perfection. Job 
holds up this completely unattainable standard of faithfulness in the midst of suffering, right? That's, that's how I was taught to understand this story. Um, he suffers, but he praises God. He loses everything, but he holds on to his faith. And for that, God rewards him, right? That is kind of the standard line on this story. It's inspiring, I, I guess, but it's also kind of depressing as soon as you realize that we don't measure up that none of us are even close to that ideal picture of Job. Even on my best day, I am nowhere near the ideal heroic sufferer that I imagine Job to be. But what if we brought Job down a couple notches? What if we actually paid attention to his words and to the story of this book and found that Maybe instead of being this ideal hero who holds us to this completely unattainable standard, what if we discover Job as a relatable sufferer? Someone that we could see ourselves reflected in. Someone that we could uh, relate to, learn from, maybe even hope to emulate. What if Job is not a model of perfection, but of what it actually looks like to suffer well? We don't talk as much in our culture about suffering well. Um, Our focus is usually on avoiding suffering, like at all costs, right? We wanna keep suffering at bay. The mark of a successful life is to avoid suffering, but suffering is inevitable. Every single one of us is going to endure hardship, loss, trauma, grief. There's no avoiding it. How do we grieve well? How do we maintain our character in times of suffering? How do we facilitate a relationship with God? How do we hold on to our integrity, our identity in the midst of suffering and loss? That's what I believe it looks like to suffer well. And so in our time today, I wanna explore Job as a model of suffering. And I wanna explore what kind of insights, what wisdom we might learn from his example. Does that sound like a game plan? Yes, Jenny? Good. Good. That's what I wrote, so that's what we're, that's what we're getting. <clears throat> anyway, uh, that's what we're going to do. Uh, so first thing, first thing I see in Job that I think uh, is really instructive and important is that Job acknowledges his pain. I mean, we saw it in the passage today. He is hurting. He's not putting up a front and trying to hide it. Uh, Job is not forcing a smile and pretending everything is okay. He is very transparent and very vocal about the fact that he is hurting and he doesn't care who knows it. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? He has walled up my way. God has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. God has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped my glory from me and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. God has uprooted my hope like a tree. Job is not mincing words here, right? He's not like tiptoeing through the tulips. This is not the calm, saintly Job of our imaginations who humbly and heroically accepts his fate. No, Job is ticked. He's ticked at God, and he wants us all to know. Job acknowledges his pain. A lot of uh, American church culture especially, it might be true in other countries, I don't know, 
but especially American church culture seems to be permeated with this toxic positivity. Uh, we think we have to keep it together when we, when we gather for worship. Don't be a downer. Don't be negative. Don't let the scars show. Turn that frown upside down, right? This is the friendly first, not the sad first. We are not always comfortable with lament or even basic transparency around suffering. That's kind of a church culture. I can't tell you how many people in our congregation have come up to me and shared um, about a period of really hard suffering after they went through that period of really hard suffering. Like once it had already passed, that's when they came and told me about it. And I'll say, like, why didn't, why didn't you say anything before? I had no idea you were going through this. And it's, oh, I didn't want to be a downer. I didn't want people to, to worry about me. I didn't want to bother anybody. I know you're busy. I'm not that busy, guys. It's literally my job to, like, know these things. This is a church. If we can't be transparent about our suffering here, where else do we go? And I don't know if this is an our church thing, I don't know if it's like a, a Western New York thing or a broader American thing, but we don't like to acknowledge when we're hurting. We hide it, we stuff it down, and we put up a front. Is that everywhere? <laughs> You've been around, it's everywhere. That's good to know, it's not just us. Thank God. Um, I, have, I have seen this in other churches. Um, the first year that Aaron and I were married back in 2010, um, we went to a mega church, which I know, ew. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name is Dan, and I've been to a mega church. Um, that's, that's an AA joke, if you're, yeah, thank you, if you're, if you're paying attention. Um, but we had just relocated, my wife and I, closer to Philadelphia. Um, plus, we had, we had some friends there, and I got to play in the praise band. I was playing drums, so it, it worked for us in that season. And I remember the, the worship pastor was a really good guy, really nice guy. Um, but he was always telling the people on the worship teams uh, to smile. That was always the thing. You gotta smile when you're up front in front of the church. No frowns. Can't look sad. Smile. Oh, one time at practice, he stopped us midway through a song, and he looks at me, and I'm like, oh no, you know? What did I do? Did I, did I miss a fill? Was I playing too fast? And he goes, oh no, 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 no. Dan, Dan, your, your playing is great. Your, your playing's fine. Um, but you look so serious. You look so down behind that drum set. Why don't you smile when you play? And so we're, we're playing through the song again, and he catches my eye, and I'm like, <laughs> like, like this, you know? You know? Is this what you want? Um, I think I scared the crap out of everyone. Um, he never asked me to smile again after that, actually. But that's the trick, ladies, when people tell you to smile. No, let's be scary. But that's the culture of our lot. a lot of our churches, is this constantly positive atmosphere. There's no room for lament and loss. We assume that being Christian means being happy. It's toxic, it's phony, and it doesn't leave room for people who are hurting. I have a friend who, when she was 16 years old, uh, her mom was diagnosed with cancer. And they were part of this charismatic, uh, faith-healing church borderline cult, I would say, in my opinion. Um, and my friend's mom had all these people, pastors and friends from church, weighing in and telling her, you can't acknowledge that it's cancer. Don't, don't say that it's cancer. It's not cancer. You're not sick. You have to believe. You have to have faith, and God will heal you. 
Three months after the diagnosis, her mom died, having never once acknowledged that she had cancer. My friend never got to have conversations that you're supposed to have with your loved ones in those seasons around death and grief and how to process all of that. It was robbed by some really bad theology. Of course, that's a really extreme example, but it's not far off from where much of our culture even finds itself. We talk about the power of positive thinking. Uh, This idea that if you stay positive, if you project strength, if you put positive energy out into the world and don't acknowledge your pain, you can somehow manifest blessing. It's not real. It's not true. Life doesn't work like that. Acknowledging your pain is not a sign of bad faith. It doesn't make you a bad Christian. It makes you human. Jesus was human and he acknowledged his pain. He wept when his friend Lazarus died. He cried out to God from the cross, why have you abandoned me? Jesus acknowledges his suffering and so did Job. It's not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of strength. That's thing number one. Thing number two up here, Job maintains a line of communication with God. Keeps that line of dialogue open. Job, in his time of suffering, he blames God, but he takes his complaint directly to God. He doesn't cut off the flow of communication. Um, And it was probably necessary for Job to talk to God because his friends are miserable, right? They're, They're the worst. And we saw last Sunday that Job's dialogue to God, Job's prayers are not always nice. They're not always fluffy and respectful and reverent. Sometimes Job gets downright accusatory in his prayer. There's this famous line uh, in Psalm 8. It's a psalm of praise about the glory of God. Uh, You might recognize it. Here's, Here's what the psalmist writes in Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them. How many of us know this or have maybe heard a translation of it? Okay. So in in Job chapter 7, Job riffs on this line in one of his prayers. He picks up on this, what are human beings, idea, and uh, it's amazing. It's from Job chapter 7. What are human beings that you set your mind on them? Visiting them every morning, testing them every moment. Will you not look away from me for a while? Let me alone until I swallow my spittle. (laughs) You guys, Job is parodying the Bible in the Bible. It's so meta. I love this. It's, it's amazing. Um, it's almost disrespectful. It kind of comes right up to that line, but it keeps the line of communication open. See, I think what happens is, in times of suffering, we tend to withdraw. We pull back from friends and family. We pull back in our spiritual lives. We stop going to church, put our Bibles on the shelf, stop praying. I can't talk to God right now, not in this state. I'm not even sure if God's there. If I pray right now, I'm going to end up saying something to God that I will regret. Say it. Say the thing you'll regret. Don't cut that line of communication. God can handle it. I promise you. It's kind of like um, that movie Signs. Has anyone here ever seen Signs? We've got the, I think we've got the poster on the slide. Has anyone seen Signs? It's, um, 
2002 movie. I won't say how old I was when it came out, but it, it made a very big impact on me. Uh, let's say that. Um, it stars Mel Gibson, which, ew, I know. Um, <laughs> but but this, was, this was a little bit before we knew how problematic Mel Gibson could be. Um, but Mel Gibson plays a pastor who's lost his faith. His wife dies. Um, there's an alien invasion. It's, it's, it's basically the story of Job plus aliens. That's, that's science. Um, <clears throat> But Mel Gibson's character completely cuts off all contact with God. Stops praying, uh, stops believing, quits his job as a pastor. Anytime anyone in the movie even mentions God or prayer, he dismisses it outright. And there is this scene at the climax of the film. Spoilers for signs, by the way. Um, you've had 21 years. <laughs> but but there's, there's this scene at the climax where the aliens are in the house, and Mel Gibson barricades himself and his kids in the basement, but then his son starts having an asthma attack, and they left the asthma medicine upstairs. So Mel Gibson is holding his son. He's got his child dying in his arms, and for the first time in the entire movie, he prays. He looks up to heaven, his eyes welling with tears, and he says, I hate you. I hate you. That's his prayer. But that prayer is the beginning of the turnaround. It's the first step in everything changing for him. And of course, it's a movie, so like it all works out. You know, the aliens are defeated, the kid is okay, Mel Gibson gets his faith back, gets his job back, but it starts out with that raw, brutal prayer of, I hate you. Whatever you do, in times of suffering, don't sever that line of communication with God. Don't cut it off. God can handle it. Even if your prayers are angry and bitter, it's okay. Job went to God with angry, bitter prayers in times of suffering. God can take it. And that angry, bitter, honest prayer might be the first step toward healing. So we got to acknowledge our pain. We need to maintain communication with, Job, with God. And uh, thing number three, Job demonstrates that our response to suffering is going to ebb and flow. Job's response to his own suffering ebbs and flows. If you actually read the book of Job, which I highly encourage you all to do, um, it's a roller coaster ride, right? It's, you get whiplash. One minute, Job is all... You know, naked I've come from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The very next minute, he's cursing the day of his birth. Uh, one minute, he is blaming God, raging at God for torturing him and all this. The next minute, it's my Redeemer lives. It's wild, the back and forth. There isn't a clear trajectory. Job doesn't like start out over here and then smoothly transition to the next place. It's way more up and down and back and forth and circles and trapezoids and all that. A lot of times when we suffer, we expect there's going to be this linear progression. You start out hurting and in pain, and you move toward hope and healing. And sometimes that's how it works, but not always. You're going to have good days and bad days. There will be days when you can't bring yourself to leave the house, and other days where you just want to be around people. There will be times when it's a struggle to talk to God, and there will be other times when you just erupt in praise. There isn't a smooth, linear path 
one right way. Are we familiar with the five stages of grief? Do we know about this? Um, Denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. What we often get wrong about that is that we think it's a linear progression. We think you start in denial and move nice and smoothly toward acceptance. But that is not how the stages of grief work. You can experience any stage at any time. They don't always come at you in order. One day you're depressed, the next you're angry. Today you're in a state of acceptance. Tomorrow denial could come creeping back in. When we've been through a significant loss, it's not uncommon to have those feelings come rushing back years or even decades later. That's normal. That's part of it. Doesn't mean you haven't worked through it. It's just how grief works. Some seasons are going to be hard. Holidays are going to be hard. Anniversaries are going to be hard. There might be a period of time every year where you know you've got to do some self-care, you've got to slow down, you've got to talk to a therapist or a good friend. That's all part of suffering well. One more piece. One more bit of wisdom from Job. This one's super easy to miss, too. Job's suffering does not neatly resolve. It doesn't have a clear resolution. Yes, I know Job gets all of his stuff back. Spoilers. We're going to talk about that uh, in a few weeks. But there's some ambiguity in the conclusion of this book that is usually over our heads. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. Fun fact. Ready for a fun fact? Okay. Job is the book in the Bible that has the most words we can't translate into English. I define fun weird. Um, But Job, Job is the book of the Bible with the most words we can't translate into English. There are Hebrew words in Job that are lost. We have no idea what they mean. Because remember, pretty much by the time of Jesus, by the first century, Hebrew is essentially a dead language. Jesus spoke Aramaic. Um, Most Jews at that time spoke Greek. Um, Not many people speak in Hebrew. When a language dies, all that means is there's no native speakers left. It's a lot like Latin. No one speaks Latin anymore, uh, although I'm told Anne Hazen comes close. Um, But you can study Latin, you can learn it, you can study Hebrew, you can look at texts, but no, there's no native speakers of biblical Hebrew left. Which means that if there's a word that only appears once or twice in our Bibles and it's nowhere else, we probably don't know exactly what that word means. There's no one that we can ask, like, hey, what's this word? It's, we don't know. Um, usually you can guess from context and get pretty close, but sometimes it's tricky. And Job has more mystery words than any other book of the Bible. And get this, the bulk of those words come to us at the end of the book when Job talks to God and God talks back. When God shows up to answer Job, we get this onslaught of words that we can't translate, which I think is kind of perfect, isn't it? It's almost like we're not meant to know. These are the last words we get from Job. In the final chapter of the book, after Job and God have gone toe-to-toe, Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I I had uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me that I did not know. Here and I will speak, I will question you and you declare to me, 
I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, before we even get to the words that we can't translate, let's acknowledge this is poetry, and poetry is generally open to interpretation, right? We don't know Job's tone in this passage. It could be that Job is humble and penitent. I know that you can do all things. It could also be that Job is sarcastic. I know you can do all things, right? It's almost like a teenager talking to their dad, like, I know you pay the bills around here. You could, you could read it that way. It would work. And then if we bring up uh, verse, okay, that's verse two. Go to verse uh, three and four, next one, perfect. We get this line. Um, this is in verses three and four. Job is actually quoting God back to him. This is all stuff Job, or that God has said to Job. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? You have uttered what you did not understand. Things too wonderful for you to know. Listen and I will speak. This is all stuff God told Job. And then verse five and six. Job says, I've heard of you, but now I see you. And then we get this line. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. It's a weird verse. It's doubly uh, weird because there is no agreed upon consensus among Bible scholars for how to translate this verse. None. Um, In most Bibles, you're going to find something pretty close to this, um, but we can't translate this line perfectly because we don't know what these highlighted words actually mean. It could be that Job is speaking as a man who's been humbled. He dared to question God, and now he's repenting. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. That's how we usually read this, and that works. That's a good translation. But you could also translate it like this, uh, an alternate version. Therefore, I am disgusted and was better off in dust and ashes. Job could be repenting here. Um, He could be surrendering to God's greatness, or he might be saying, now that I've seen you, I'm disgusted. I was better off on the ash heap. Both translations work, and we aren't sure which one is right, and I think that might be the point. For at least 2,000 years, and leave both these up here uh, on the screens for now, For at least 2,000 years, most readers of this line, most of the rabbis, have said that we need both readings. We need the snarky and the penitent. The ambiguity is divinely inspired. Both options belong. In the very next line after this one, which we don't have in the slides, but you can check in your Bible, Job 42. Very next line after this, God praises Job and says, Job has spoken rightly about me. It could be that Job is humble and repenting, or Job could be saying, sorry, God, your answer's not good enough, and either way, God says, you're right. Job has spoken rightly. Job's ending is ambiguous because there is no set outcome that we have to reach in times of suffering. There is not a one-size-fits-all goal that we have to arrive at in order to be faithful. You might learn to accept and even embrace your loss, 
you might experience a sense of peace that passes all understanding, that would be my prayer for you, but you might not. You may never look at God the same way again. There might be a part of you that's missing that you never get back. You might have some bitterness in your soul that you just can't let go of, and that's okay too. That's allowed. That also can be embraced and redeemed. Don't let anybody tell you how you have to feel, how you have to grieve. There's not one right way to do it. Acknowledge your pain. Keep that line of communication with God open, even when it gets ugly. Expect that things are going to ebb and flow. You will have ups and downs and in-betweens, and it might never neatly resolve. But God is with us through all of it. God's love is big enough for all of it, and with God's help, we can overcome all of it. That's suffering well. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the good news of Job. Thank you for giving us this portrait in your word of a relatable sufferer. An example that we can connect with, see ourselves in, and learn from. God, help us to suffer well. Help us acknowledge our pain and our doubts. Help us weather the storm and stay connected to you, even when it gets ugly. And God, help us remember that you are with us through all of it, that you will never leave us or forsake us, and that you are carrying us through it. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at BrockportFB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.